0: Honeywell kind of under its own spotlight today of the company reporting earnings this morning. Stock's a little bit lower despite a beat on both the top and the bottom lines. But we've got an interesting column out by our own Brooke Sutherland. She's deals and industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Hey, nice to have you here. I know it's been a busy week for you with all these industrials reporting. Why do you say right now kind of Honeywell kind of in in its own spotlight right now?
2: so why why I say that they're in their own spotlight is they typically share an earnings day with GE this has historically always been the third Friday of October now GE this year is moving out of its traditional spot um, and it actually delayed its earnings even later to October 30th uh, to give its new CEO Larry Colt more time to analyze the business get a better handle on the company's problems and so this is sort of the first time in, in kind of a while that Honeywell is is holding this prime spot on its own And it should. I mean, these days it has a bigger market value than GE, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, But, you know, the report was really, really strong today. They had 7% organic sales growth. That's the strongest since 2011. And it really speaks to CEO Darius Adamchek's focus on improving Honeywell's sales growth, which has traditionally not really been a strong point for the company. Mm -hmm. But what's important is he's doing that while also continuing to increase margins. So he hasn't sacrificed that strong operational execution story that investors really love at Honeywell. But at the same time, he's pushing revenue growth forward. And I think what's important is that a number of Honeywell's businesses are longer cycle, like aerospace, automation, uh, petrochemicals. So those are positioned to sort of see that momentum continue versus some of the shorter cycle names that we saw report earlier this week and last week, like Fastenal, Granger, that are sort of seeing a sign of a peak.
1: Well, and I want to go back to something you said about GE, because this has been such a tale of two industrials for the last few years, and no one's covered it candidly better and more closely than you why is it that honeywell has been able to be this kind of well managed steady eddy growth engine while ge has become synonymous with corporate drama <laughs> and you know essentially big existential questions around its future
2: Sure. Well, I mean, it wasn't always this way. So Dave Cody was brought in to be CEO after GE tried to buy Honeywell and that whole deal fell apart. Honeywell was a bit of a mess. It had done this really not great deal with Allied Signal and Dave Cody really had to do a lot of cleanup work, and that took years. But then, you know, once he sort of got that stabilized, I think probably the biggest difference is capital allocation. You know, Dave Cody bought a lot of companies, but they tended to be smaller. They tended to be really strategic, Mm -hmm. and he tended to really get a lot out of them, versus GE significantly overpaid for a number of different deals. um, And it just never really... It struggled to follow through. So it would show up in these markets and it would be late to the market, having spent a lot of money. And then the business would just, at best, maybe get lost in GE, the conglomerate, or at worst, turn into a big problem like the Alstom deal. Else? Go ahead. Well,
1: I was just going to say, and it feels like Cody managed his succession a lot more cleanly than clearly Jeff Himmel did
2: yes i think that's really fair to say and i think he made a great choice in darius and darius is is very different from dave cody he's much um he's quieter he's more reserved he's more of a a technocrat in the best sense of the word um he has a software background which i think dave cody really realized that that was where industrial companies were going and that honeywell probably needs somebody with experience in that and who would have more of that growth focus I have to be honest, my father worked for
0: Bendix, which became Allied Signal, which became ultimately Honeywell. So we kind of grew up like living through all the gyrations and the deals. Um, but I'm curious because they're now aerospace, right? They're home and building technologies. They've got a couple different segments. Are these the markets that they should be in? Is that what do analysts, does the investment community kind of like where they are?
2: You know, I think so. So they've done uh, a couple of spinoffs that are in the works right now. If you remember, Dan Loeb came in and said they should spin off their aerospace business. And they said, well, we're not going to do that, but we're going to spin off these other And that's been a good thing, right? It has been a good thing because they've had huge growth from that aerospace business. A lot of what Dan Loeb was arguing was, you know, there had been weakness in the business jet market because there was so much uh, used inventory. And that's really started to turn around. And specifically this quarter, you saw really good growth in that business jet market. So it's a good thing that Honeywell held held on to it. Um, But they are spinning off their turbochargers business. That actually happened already on Mm -hmm. October 1st. And then their consumer-facing home technologies business. That will happen on October 29th. Now, I think people are pretty comfortable with the mix of businesses Honeywell has after those spinoffs. But I think the question is, do they need to do acquisitions? Because those spinoffs will create a pretty meaningful amount of earnings dilution. Um, that Honey will will have to work to offset somehow. And one obvious way to do that is through M&A.
1: Well, I can't have you here, especially given what I said earlier, without asking you about GE coming up in a couple (laughs) weeks, as you say, new CEO in the seat. What are the early signs from what you're hearing from people you talk to? What are the observations there?
2: So I just in my personal experience, I don't think companies delay their earnings announcements because they have so much good news <laughs> that they just want to, like, build anticipation for it. Um, you know, I, on the one hand, I understand that this is a very complicated situation. GE is still a very complicated company, and I think Larry Culp maybe perhaps realizes that when the CEO announcement was made, people really latched on to the fact that there was not a conference call. There was not a slide deck. There was not a lot of details at all. And I think that very un-GE. Yeah, very un-GE and probably to its detriment. And so I think, you know, he probably wants to have a pretty clear message. He knows he's going to get a lot of questions. So he's probably trying to finesse that to some extent. But you can't get away from the fact this is going to be a very, very messy quarter. We already know there's going to be that goodwill impairment charge. That's yeah. that. going to be almost $23 billion, but we don't know a lot of the specifics of that. You could see a dividend cut, an equity raise. I mean, there's a lot of nasty things that could be coming.
1: And I think we also know that he's not going to get a lot of shots at getting all the bad news out, right? I mean, that's no. really the, the flannery really. Lannery lesson right it's like get it all out there this sort of drip 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 or shoe after shoe after shoe dropping not gonna happen can almost
0: me in the meetings with his team saying I want to know it all now
1: (laughs) tell me everything (laughs) you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week our thanks to Brooke Sutherland that's an anthem
0: I've heard that one <laughs> a great uh, song, right?
1: Haven't heard that one in a while. Well, if there's one thing we were talking about it that New Yorkers love to talk about, it is real estate. Also at Bloomberg, we love our superlatives and we've got a guy with a nice superlative around his name. Andrew Anderson is a broker with Douglas Elliman Real Estate joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker's Studio. The superlative, he sold the most expensive home in Brooklyn history, a $20 million plus penthouse in brooklyn heights andrew great to have you here with carol and myself tell us about this place in brooklyn wow
3: so first thank you for having me on the show with you guys it's it's my pleasure the um so i was fortunate enough to represent a property called quay tower which is on the waterfront in brooklyn heights really uniquely positioned um, the last developable plot in the waterfront there right on Brooklyn Bridge Park, and we had a purchaser who's buying two of the penthouses there and combining them, um, and ultimately will link the largest deal in Brooklyn by quite a bit.
0: Can I just tell you? Oh my God! I took out the pictures. Uh, There's a lot. Think holy
3: (laughs) schmoly.
1: This is a
0: holy schmoly moment. Yes, it It is. is. Um, A lot to like about it, including um, the 1,200 square foot or nearly 1,200 square foot private terrace. But is that just one terrace, or are there two now? No,
3: no, no. So that's the only terrace. The apartment itself is about 7,400 square feet. Yeah. um, And then you have 1,179 to be exact outside. But the really. I've never seen anything like this. Wh- in why terms do you of, say
0: that? Why do you say it, that?
3: In terms of view, the oh, you know this this building stands alone. So it's got four sides. This particular apartment has views from essentially the Atlantic Ocean, the New York Harbor, Governors Island, the most amazing view of the downtown Manhattan skyline that I've ever seen personally, and then beyond all the way up to the Empire State Building and Chrysler, and on and on and on. There's
0: a shot of a bathroom, and you're just—it's like I know. I did check it out. I love real estate, and mm-hmm. I was just at the floor, the, the floor to um, ceiling, glass. ceiling glass, and it's like just water
3: from almost every room. So, the, the, the penthouse in the building has windowed bathrooms, windowed kitchens, windowed everything. It was designed by ODA and one of the most renowned architects that exists. So, it's an architectural really,
0: digest, or it, at least they it, ran something, yeah. They,
3: it. they sure did. <laughs> and the designers were Marmal Radziner, who are 8100 designers. So, notably, this was in Brooklyn.
1: Um, So tell us about the inevitable question, Brooklyn versus Manhattan. Sure. All the hipsters, all the very wealthy hipsters uh, have been moving to Brooklyn. But uh, what's the market breakdown here for us?
3: Uh, So the Brooklyn market is fascinating. Um, You know, I think Brooklyn is really coming into its own at this point. I mean, what, what we're seeing is. Uh, six out of the past nine quarters Brooklyn has broken records in terms of the median price, the average price actually the average price of a Brooklyn apartment at the moment is a million bucks and this is the first time that we've ever broken a million dollars in Brooklyn which is which is pretty amazing um, you know I think what's you know sort of a defining factor now Brooklyn was always seen as a value play right Yes. Yeah. And, and what we've seen it shift to now is more of a desire driven purchase right so buyers are buying in Brooklyn because they want to be in Brooklyn not because they need to be because they can't afford Manhattan right and I think that's a really defining factor we were just
0: we just did an event at Bloomberg uh, sooner than you think conference we were out in Williamsburg I mean there's just yeah. so much activity
3: there, there there really is and and all the all the different neighborhoods really take on personalities of their own right yeah. Williamsburg may may trend a little younger whereas Brooklyn Heights is more established and yeah. has a little more grandeur and and trends a little older in demographic.
0: I want to ask you, who's buying? And I'm curious about international buying. Is it is or who's, who's doing the buying of these properties? So um,
3: it's a pretty broad demographic that's buying, which wasn't always the case in Brooklyn, right? Um, and specific to international, what's, what's interesting is the international buyers would buy uptown historically and then they sort of uh, discovered the nuances to downtown and moved downtown and now really for the first time in my experience we're starting to see that in brooklyn right and i think that's really refreshing and i think that speaks volumes to um to brooklyn and are a lot of these foreign buyers only about 30 seconds left stopping in brooklyn before i mean are they sort of is that the flow now yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going from uptown to downtown to Brooklyn. I mean, you have amazing hotels, amazing art yeah. galleries, amazing restaurants. I mean, Brooklyn has a soul that is is really unrivaled anywhere, in my opinion. So. Amazing, amazing. Says the
0: man who just sold an apartment for $20 million plus, the most expensive property in well, Brooklyn. Well, and and we should also <laughs> year, mention, right? uh, since, is, we have, thank
1: you. since we have Andrew with us, he sold... billion in New York City real estate, (laughs) one of the top 1% of real estate professionals uh, nationwide. So he knows a thing or two about his business. Andrew Anderson, broker, Douglas Ellman Real Estate, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser
4: and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
0: So Jason, among the most read stories on the Bloomberg at this hour, some headlines we just mentioned uh, moments ago, a Russian national being charged by the United States for allegedly being... One of the masterminds behind a conspiracy to interfere in both the 2016 and 2018 elections, the Justice Department coming out with this. Let's get uh, the lowdown on this. Craig Gordon is back with us, Washington Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Lots to talk about, Craig. Uh, It's been a busy week again. But let's talk about these headlines crossing. I'm curious, uh, what are the implications here? And I'm, I'm curious, too, about the timing.
4: Yeah. I mean, look, I think it, right around the same time the, uh, the director of national intelligence, the DNI, came out and said that they are starting to see evidence of uh, various other nations, and they mentioned China, Russia, and Iran, uh, starting to uh, starting to meddle in the 2018 midterm elections. Obviously, we've spent a lot of time the past two years talking about Russian meddling the possibility of that, at least in the 2016 election. It seems like this indictment and this statement from the director of national intelligence were kind of timed in a sense, three weeks or so or less, actually, before the midterms to get people's attention. That um, that the the games continue. Uh, it's a woman who's been connected to uh, a, a Russian oligarch named Prigozhin, who sometimes uh, affectionately referred to as Putin's chef because he runs a catering uh, a concord. It's called Concord Catering, a catering service based out of Russia. But this this indictment essentially alleges that this woman had financial records and had created a bunch of social media accounts. That were meant to, uh, that were again, you know, much like 2016, meant to influence voters as the uh, as the voting went on. So it seemed like a little bit of a setting up a warning flare um, for voters as they're getting ready to head to the polls. Some people are already voting and early voting. That, hey, um, we got to be mindful that uh, that other countries are trying to are trying to muck around in our elections again this time.
1: And what do you think the political implications of this are going to be, especially with a, shall we say, very vocal uh, president uh, on this issue and one who is, you know, stumping pretty vigorously uh, at the moment? I think an event tonight and and a couple more over the weekend.
4: Yeah, I mean the indictment specifically mentioned Russian influence, um, and as we know well from the intelligence community, dating all the way back to January twenty seventeen, they, you know, their their official finding is that the the Russian government was trying to influence the U.S. presidential election in twenty sixteen on behalf of Donald Trump. They wanted Donald Trump to win. They wanted Hillary Clinton to lose. Now the president, of course, would dispute that but that is the sort of the collective wisdom of of the US intelligence community that that was that was an effort that was underway you know and the DNI statement where they bring in China they bring in Iran it's a little the the motives are a little murkier there there does seem to be a great deal of concern inside the intel community separate from the Russia thing in particular of just anything that undermines the notion of democracy right. if you could create a situation where yeah. american voters don't trust the outcome of their own election Well, imagine the implications of that for democracy and sort of the the power, you might say, of the United States. Pretty big deal.
0: Craig, to be fair, uh, is the U.S. meddling in other countries' elections as well?
4: Well, you know, what goes <laughs> around comes around. Right. Um, and that's the that's sort of the funny part about all this is, that, you know, I sometimes the phrase spy versus spy. <laughs> we well, don't have to remember that from Mad Magazine. Yeah. Anything that's being done to us, we're probably doing to someone. I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb with that or giving away any big state secrets. There is a certain amount of spy craft that goes on between nations and, and whatnot. It, it's usually sort of. You know, within certain boundaries, I think when you're starting to mess with individual elections or potentially individual election results, voter rolls, a big concern. You know, can you actually take people's names off off rolls, make it harder for people to vote? Well, that feels like a different you know, that feels like a different level. Um, And so I think that's where the intel community gets gets very, uh, very uptight.
1: So as Carol mentioned, Craig, you know, we're wrapping up a pretty busy and newsworthy week. Uh, Give us the latest read from Washington on what's going on in Saudi Arabia around uh, the investigation of the journalist, uh, Mr. Khashoggi, the U.S. reaction to that. We obviously saw the administration pull back a little bit, not sending Secretary Mnuchin to the investing conference that's happening next week. What's the next step here?
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I think we saw a, a, a very slight, almost imperceptible, um, you know, calibration there by by President Trump. Uh, Steve Mnuchin the treasury secretary was supposed to go to that Saudi investment conference uh you know one of the big a fairly big event there in the region and and only until yesterday was still planning to go and then they and then they sort of changed their mind what seems to be happening right now is as we know secretary of state Mike Pompeo traveled through the region he went to Saudi he went to Turkey um and he came back and essentially made a plea which seems to have been accepted by president Trump to essentially give the Saudis a couple of more days Um, that the notion is they are investigating, they are going to sort of come forth with some kind of a report about what happened inside that consulate uh, to Mr. Khashoggi and, you know, essentially got Trump to hold off for, for a couple of days. You know, as we've talked about before on this program, I don't think Donald Trump is that eager to sort of crack down on Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But there seemed to be at least a recognition after Pompeo's trip that, you know, this this is obviously there could be a problem here and they need to kind of wait and give the Saudis a chance to to sort of come forth with whatever they come forth with and sort of decide from there. So I kind of expect over the weekend we may find out a little bit more of what the Saudis are willing to say about this. And that will create some kind of reaction from the United States if if there is responsibility that rests inside the Saudi government and obviously up to um, the crown prince. I'm not sure the Saudis are going to admit that. But if, it, if it's hard to deny that someone inside the Saudi government knew this was happening and at least condoned it or looked the other way, it right. seems hard. Trump would have to do something. It feels like it's just too big of a story too big of an episode and he might have to weigh in so we have to a long way to go on the story i think
0: just got about 50 seconds left here i am curious though about how much pressure the white house is getting from the business community the financial community they may have backed out of that conference that's easy to do it's just a conference as some have have observed but you know i I hear that you know second level or lower level bankers are still going and so on and so forth that it's not like the whole business community is turning its back and i'm just curious what what the the white house might be hearing uh, on that front
4: sure i mean it's just it's the same it's almost they're in almost the same position as Trump nobody you know yeah. uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been sort of good for business in a sense good for the United States he's been helpful to us in the region but so the, everyone's trying to sort of you know hedge their bets a little bit they don't want to maybe have Steve Mnuchin show up but Steve Mnuchin may still go to Saudi Arabia just not go to that conference I know right. Goldman is sending some bankers from the region so everyone's trying to walk the line and I think Donald Trump is too
1: very good, Craig Gordon, Washington bureau chief for Bloomberg. Always good to catch up with you, joining us from our ninety nine one studio there in the nation's capital. It's Certainly complicated. It's complicated, it. right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and just as you say, up and down Wall Street, they are talking about it across uh, the corporate sphere. This is a, a yeah. deep, deeply entrenched relationship between these two countries and the economic systems of both. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm just letting that Michael Jackson sort of resonate a little bit, in part because... Carol Masser made dance right out of the studio. Uh, it's like it's that song on.
0: you have to get up and dance to, just you saying. You do, you do.
1: No, it's true, it's true. Uh, starting Something is obviously on the minds of venture capitalists uh, all the time. I love digging into the world of venture capital, especially the corporate side, only because they see the world a little bit yes. differently. Uh, Scott Darling is the president of Dell Technologies Capital, joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Scott, great to be with you. Uh, so what are you seeing out there? You know, we always look to the venture guys to look around the corner what are you
5: seeing yeah hi jason thank you for welcoming me to your program hi carol how are you doing well um great uh yeah well you know it's boom time uh in 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 the venture world uh we're approaching a hundred billion dollars invested this year in venture capital in the u.s uh we are clearly going to set a new record so um so it's it's boom times uh in in the venture world jason
1: so boom times means a lot of money being put to work how competitive uh is it out there you know and and what sort of what sort of premiums are you feeling like you have to pay given that there's all that money sloshing around
5: yeah no that's that's clearly an issue that we we all wrestle with um you know we um Uh, valuations are up and uh, you know what we have done in our practice is we have rotated uh, we we are free um, to invest across the entire spectrum but what we have done is we have rotated to early stage so we are I would say 95% plus of our investments are seed series A or B these days and part of that is you know we, we do that anyway but part of it is a reaction to the valuations we're seeing in later rounds.
0: You know what I'm curious, too, about is um, the type of companies that you guys are investing in at Dell. Is it just about kind of um, building out your existing businesses, or is it about also looking for some really cool um, standalone opportunities?
5: Yeah, a little bit of both, uh, Carol. The, you know, we, we view ourselves as different than um, you know what people generally call corporate VCs, and, and very succinctly let me explain what i mean by that traditionally corporate investors invest late as a in the process uh... As, as i already alluded to almost the vast vast majority of our investments are early stage second they tend not to lead in price rounds and they tend to be passive and that means they're observers not active board members we take board seats uh, we invest early, we price rounds, and we're very actively involved in building these companies. Um, uh, it sounds a little trite, but it really is true. We think we really offer the best of both worlds, both all the advantages of company building of a pure financial VC, as well as the corporate uh, advantage we we can bring. And um, to address your question directly, yeah, we do generally invest in areas that are related to what we do. I mean, I'm not going to uh, you know, in, in, invest in pet or clothing startups. That's not what we do, right? We don't have any expertise there. We're very focused on hardware and software infrastructure that are relevant to Dell, VMware, Pivotal, SecureWorks, et cetera, all part of our, our corporate uh, com- uh, corporate entity.
1: And so where does the market go from here, given everything that you've said about sort of where you're investing of all that money, you know, pouring in? We had a story in the last few issues of Business Week looking at SoftBank and, you know, the Vision Fund and everything that's going on. there. so much money piling in. Are we at the peak here? This is ultimately <laughs> a cyclical business, right? <laughs>
5: Yes, all businesses are cyclical, as you know as well as I do. And uh, Jason, I don't mean to be coy, but I don't think I'm going to take debate and try and predict where we are in the process. <laughs> Shoot,
0: because
5: <laughs> I, I if there's, I've been doing this for many decades, and the one thing I can assure you, I it's always good to know to be honest with yourself about what you don't know. And right. What I what I know for sure is that I can't predict a business cycle. Well, but, let me um, let me ask yeah. you a, d-
1: a different question then, Scott. And uh, you know, yeah. you've got to give a guy uh, points for trying. <laughs> uh, how about on the other side? You know, on the exit side, because you know we hear yeah. a lot about this new world of private capital. You know, the land of unicorns and valuations and rounds that go on and on and on. What are you seeing on yeah. the other end of your portfolio? See, and
0: I thought you were going to ask about the exit for Dell.
5: Wow, that's a whole different.
1: Issue. Well,
0: thank ca- thank you,
5: Carol. I appreciate the plug. But uh, oh, you were referring to corporate Dell. No, I thought you were referring to our portfolio companies. I was referring
1: um, to your portfolio companies. Sorry,
5: <laughs> Carol. So I've got the one-two punch. Jason tried to uh, get me to take the bait, and Carol tried also. But, uh,
0: Just got about twenty seconds, unfortunately.
5: Yeah, yeah, no problem. So yeah, we've had a great year. We've exited a lot of portfolios. There's a lot of uh, – in spite of uh, the, the pace at which things are moving, there are a lot of tremendously interesting emerging technology areas that we're active in, and we're very bullish about the impact on these, of these technology investments on the work – uh, on all of our lives.
1: Very good. Scott Darling, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Love checking in with you. Uh, hope to talk to you again. President of Dell Technologies joining us on the phone from Palo Alto.
5: I'm
0: This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will
1: drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
0: I'm not counting, but we're an hour and ten minutes uh, uh, away from uh, kind of uh, quitting time. <laughs> but we're only ten minutes away from the closing bell on this Friday. It's been uh, another interesting week. A lot of volatility, as Jason mentioned, right back in the markets.
1: Vol is back, and we're going to get into that in a big way with Jeff Crumpleman, chief investment strategist and director of equities for Mariner Wealth Advisors. He's based in Cincinnati. But he's right here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. So, Jeff, great to have you with Carol and myself uh, right here. So, Vol,
6: you like it? Yeah, well, y- y- uh, yes. I mean, it's really just a return to, to normal, if right. you will. Now, as a portfolio manager and our team at Mariner, you can take advantage of that. So if wait, you- wait, wait.
0: Go back for a second. So, what we saw last week, um, I was away doing downward-facing dog and pose, <laughs> but um, – we had the market sell off, what, over 5% in two days. Mm-hmm. That's normal volatility? It,
6: it, we, had or was below, that a... we had below normal volatility. So if you looked at the VIX and the level of the VIX, it had been abnormally low. Right. right. And just the fact that all of a sudden the market starts to move, we're just moving back towards what you would expect, which is a little you know price fluctuation in the market. And so the question is, well, what do you do with that? Right. And if the fundamental data is bad and valuation is expensive, then maybe you, you're cautious. If, on the other hand, valuation has become quite attractive, actually, in quiet fashion. Right. Fundamentals are good. You say, well, what's cheap? What's on sale? What do we like? And certainly hold the positions that you already own, uh, maybe even add to some of those.
0: So. Well, what?
6: Well,
1: I want to... <laughs> wait, what? Wait, what? I want to get into some specific names in a second, but I want to point out something you put in a note, which I, I had not seen this math done before. Growth stocks... We're up 17%, value stocks only up around 3%. That
6: gap, that's a historical level gap, right? Uh, Absolutely, it is. Well,
1: well
0: it has been hard to be a value guy.
6: It's it's actually just been hard to to be an active manager this year in the market. It's a very odd environment. People keep reading that the market's hitting all-time highs, and quite frankly... Uh, almost half the stocks in the S&P 500 were flat down for the year. And it was concentrated. Doesn't mean that that's an unhealthy market because – Uh, price trends were positive, but if you're looking for relative performance outperforming the index, it was driven by a handful of stocks.
0: But that's a good point, too, right? If you look at the the winners and losers, because there are moments in our market history, right, where everybody's just kind of all in and throwing money at everything yes, and not really looking at individual stories. So that to see a market where the major indices continue to trend higher and yet not everybody's participating in the rally, is that healthier?
6: Well, what it says for me is... Let's take a look at the stuff that hasn't moved. And let's think about why it hasn't moved. So you remove some of these emotional headline issues like trade, tariffs, uh, and is it a war or negotiation here. I think rates would have been higher, quicker. That would have been good for the financials. You would have seen the industrials move. There's just this fear that we're going to have recession. And as you know, the experts have called nine out of the last six recessions. <laughs> so, you know. But I'm bummed. I have used bump. that line before. There, there you, you go. But uh, what we like to say is don't predict the predictors. Yeah. All right. And, so what do you like here? What's cheap? So we would look at the financials um, as a sector. We like cyclical uh, pockets of technology. And we like the industrials. And then for the defensive, consistent kind of growth side, we like healthcare. care. Yeah. Uh, those areas. But we saw the financial reports come out. You had Morgan Stanley, Goldman, and others just post very strong double-digit growth so after having a tough year today yes, right absolutely so they're inexpensive and we think that their success has been deferred uh not derailed and part of the deferment of that was um just this this fear over trade and tariffs and rates being low and that's just a, impacted all of the, the financials lower volatility that affects your trading desks are so, you
0: anticipating, though, at some point that we do have a more sustained market downturn and an economic downturn? And not just because these cycles are long, but just because it does happen. We are cyclical of nature when it yeah. comes to markets and economies. Well,
6: you didn't put a time frame on that, so I would be a fool not to say yes. Yes, we will. The, the question Next always is Next couple of years when. is what
0: I feel like everybody's kind of hammering at this point. Well,
6: in, in a portfolio manager's life, a, a 12 months is a decade. Yeah. You know, that's plenty of time to benefit so we, don't, we look at the data, and as long as the data is positive, whether you're looking at the economy, earnings, various pockets within the economy, the consumer, business spending, all of that data is positive. So the wall of worry items are the bull is aged. It's too old. It's got to end. Earnings have peaked. They haven't peaked. They're going to slow down a little bit. They right. haven't peaked. We're not going to get this
1: 20-plus percent quarter over quarter that That's, we've seen.
6: But ten is pretty good, and right. in fact, guess what? We have a 15 handle on valuation right now. fifteen that's pretty attractive.
0: What, what I want to ask you how yeah, we started off our show talking about the potential, no matter what happens in the midterm, that we might ultimately get an infrastructure bill that finally gets through whether or not Republicans uh, control both chambers of Congress or whether or not it's split. Right. If that happens, how much of a catalyst could that potentially be?
6: Well, you've just touched on maybe the wall of opportunity. Everyone talks about the wall of worry. So that's just another item to to add to the list. You know, in terms of how I would translate that. But is that a real
0: play that you're doing right now yet or no?
6: Well, you know, it would factor into the industrials and the fact that that would just give a lift to um, stocks in that arena. So, yeah, that would be a a net-net positive for sure. CVS was a name that you mentioned. Only got about 20
1: seconds left, but that one jumped out at me as something I wanted to ask you about.
6: Okay. So there you just have the secular theme of, you know, healthcare demos. You know, we, we're all we're in need of that. And eight, nine times earnings where, you know, you have an acquisition going on with Aetna, great synergies, yeah. and uh, good growth. So good example of take advantage of that eight to nine times. You
0: know. Up 22% since early May. It's had quite a rally.
6: There you go. Well, we've owned it since. You know, <laughs> since when? Of, he's riding uh, it up. Probably, um, I'd have to go back and look, but we've we've we're up 20 percent in stocks.
0: Not before. too shabby.
6: Jeff Crumpleman, chief investment strategist, director of equities for Marino Wealth
1: Advisors, here with us in New York. Enjoy your weekend here in the Big Apple. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week.